Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bullpen. Yep, he's back. Okay, we have Professor Alexander Salter, economics professor, Texas Tech University, co-author, Money and the Rule of Law, comparative economics research fellow. The list goes on and on. Commentator Young Voice is smart guy. Professor, thank you for being back on the show. How are you? Wonderful to be here. Thank you. All right. So I'm not an economics professor. All right. I don't I don't play one on TV either. But I'm willing to debate economics with you because I do care about economics and I think it plays into the larger ecosystem of social justice in the United States of America. We're gonna talk about the Build Back Better program or act as well as economic principles in general. I don't want to presume what you know or believe about the program or these economic principles connected to it. So if you would give us your sentiment. I'm happy to. To be brief, I'm not a huge fan of this bill. First of all, I think the top line result is just too big. I'm personally pretty concerned about what it's going to do to the deficit. And of course, deficits are just future taxes. So we have that to worry about. In addition, there are several provisions within the bill that do not make me particularly optimistic that the consequences are gonna turn out as the people who wrote this bill hoped. I just see more attempts to throw money at social problems without much attempts to actually figure out whether that money is going to be spent effectively to help people. So on the whole, I'm not optimistic and I do hope that the Senate does not allow this to pass. You know, that's really interesting. Let me ask you this, do you do you moralize against Donald Trump for his economic policies and creating such a massive deficit or holding the record um, as a modern day president, one of our modern day presidents as it relates to the deficit? I certainly do. Okay. I'm definitely aware that the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, although it did have some nice economic consequences, it added to the deficit. There's yep. no doubt about that. It did not fully pay for itself. People who insisted that it was going to just didn't know the arithmetic. We well, have to be consistent on the deficit, whether we have Republicans or Democrats in power. Right, and Professor, you can admit, oh, they just lied, correct? I can admit that all agents lied. No, that they just lied. Like you said, they were wrong on the arithmetic. I think some of them were not good faith actors. I think some of them, they realized very well what they were doing and they lied. You don't agree that some of them just lied? I think that some of them did, yes. I think yep. that it was marketing. I think that they knew that what they were saying was not accurate. So that's not good what they told the American people. Let me ask you about the items in the Build Back Better program, okay? Because I think it's important to understand what it is rather than what it's called. Um, it lowers childcare cost for working families. Good thing or bad thing, Professor? I'm not opposed to relief for working families, especially if it comes at the state level. I'm just worried that the way that this bill tries to tackle those problems by throwing money at it, by having distant regulators and bureaucrats involved in these local decisions isn't actually going to get at the root of the problem. The devil's in the details when it comes to bills like this. And I think that on this particular issue, we're gonna see a pretty big wedge between good intentions and unfortunately some not so good results. Well, I wanna go line by line with you on some of the things I really agree with. I actually believe it doesn't go far enough, but there are some things that I do 100% agree with. Um, so you're not opposed to the lower childcare cost for working families, okay? So how would you do it differently? What would you do differently for them? 
I would like to see more of that actually take place at the state and local level. I think that we've fallen into the trap of presupposing that the federal government is really the only entity capable of lowering those costs of getting purchasing power to working families. And that's not true. Circumstances vary from town to town, city to city and state to state. In general, if we're going to have the public sector support working families, I think that it should be tailored by keeping those relief policies at the most local level possible. Well, generally speaking, Professor, you know this, that these federal programs, the way they are distributed is through state and local governments. And they also have a calculation with the federal government. If your city has a certain population threshold, your city will get those federal dollars directly. So you still have your local control that you're talking about with a federal program interplay. So I don't understand what I'm missing here. You say it needs to be more of a localized issue. That's the way typically this money is distributed in the first place. Yes, the funds are distributed that way. There are many provisions within the bill where it starts where a lot of the money is federally distributed. But then over a couple of years, it phases out so that state governments are taking up a larger share. My problem is in terms of who's getting the money, how we determine who's going to get it, how we actually make sure that the money ends up with working families who can use it best. I just don't think that top down bureaucrats and political elites are going to be the right ones to make these decisions. I want to localize as much of this as possible. Wait a minute, hold on, wait a minute. All right, there's a certain amount of tax revenue that goes to the federal government no matter what. All right, we do our census every 10 years because we want some of that money to come back to us locally. So when you say you don't want a bunch of bureaucrats making the decision, they make the decision by constitution. This is how it works and the constitution gives them the right, the authority to implement taxation on citizens. So tell me a better way, I mean, what's the other legal way that we can get our money back from the federal government? We can get our money back from the federal government by making sure that the federal government is really restricting itself to funding programs that can benefit individuals in a general way. I'm not opposed, for example, for some of that money being used for, say, retraining, for relocation, so families can move from where jobs are disappearing to where jobs are actually appearing. But I think that the way that we're doing it is too complicated. I think that the people who are actually distributing the funds don't have much skin in the game. And I think that we ultimately We have to care that the intentions are not gonna result in what we hope for is the best for working American families. You're an economics professor, I'm sure you deal with a lot of economic theory. Are you more of a, let's say fair guy or market socialism theorist person? I'm definitely more of a free market guy. I tend to think that markets are reasonably good at allocating resources. I think that most of the time they do a better job than the public sector, which doesn't mean that the role for the public sector is zero, but I'm definitely a default market guy. All right, so let me go back to the Build Back Better program. Are you for the historic investments into HBCUs under this provision or no? I'm not familiar with that provision. Can you tell me about some more? So the the investment into historically black colleges and universities, even though it should have been more, is still the most it has ever been. HBCUs, tribal colleges, and also minority serving institutions. Initially in the bill, we were talking about 90 billion. It went down to 40 billion, then it went down to just a few billion, all right? But still even the few billion is more than we've invested into that infrastructure in the United States of America ever, right? So that's in the Build Back Better program because we're talking about human capital and human infrastructure as well, right? A combination of two. Do you disagree fundamentally with having that kind of investment into historically black colleges and universities? And you being a professor, I'm sure you understand, and I'm a professor myself, you understand the reality 
of why black colleges need to remain fully operational in this country. Yes, I'm very sympathetic to that. And I don't have any particular objections to those provisions in the bill as you've told them to me. I do have my reservations about federal government involvement in higher education in general. If you look at the price of college tuition, college services since the year 2000, on average, college tuition and fees are up 160%, far more than the rate of inflation. I think part of the explanation for that is we're just subsidizing this too much. When you subsidize something, you boost demand. When you boost demand, you boost prices. So again, I think that there are smarter and worse ways of doing this. I think that if we're going to do it, we should err on the smarter side. But I certainly have no objection to federal investment in HBCUs per se. All right, let me read something to you. And this comes from the American Economic Review. Princeton economists Alan Blinder and Mark Watson compare economic performance between Democratic and Republican presidents going back to Franklin D. Roosevelt, all right? They found, both of them concluded based on their study and research of the survey model, a systematic and large gap in the economic performance between the two philosophies. So here's how the data concluded. Using real GDP growth overall, the gap is 1.8 percentage points. So 4.3% growth for Democrats versus only 2.5% growth for Republicans. And that number is backed up by additional data, all right? So if you go through a, a metric, real GDP growth, 4.3 to 2.5, Democrat, Republican, respectively. Also, unemployment rate, 5.6, 6.0, all right, Democratic, Republican. Uh, inflation rate, under Democrats, 2.9%, under Republicans, 3.4%. And also, the uh, stock market annual return, under Democrats, is 8.4% under Republicans is 2.7%. So massively different numbers. I know it seems small, but really we're talking about billions of dollars here, okay? Left-leaning policies not only do better for economic outcomes for minorities in the United States and investments, etc., but also for whites. Whites actually do better under left-leaning policies than under right-leaning policies. Explain to me why is it that Republicans, even though the data is clear across virtually Every single variable, and I challenge you to give me one where Republicans are winning the economic fight. Why is it that Republicans still call themselves the friend of the business person or the friend of the economic or the friend of economic prosperity when the data shows they are antithetical to that progress? I'm not familiar with the particular study, but the numbers that you just quoted to me don't actually surprise me that much. Usually you would expect economic performance to be lagged a little bit in terms of policy. So you shouldn't expect that if Democrat policies are better than Republican policies, that those would immediately show up in GDP, inflation, or unemployment numbers. You gotta make sure that you're timing the policy change with the regime change that's actually in power. And of course, when we're talking about the operation of an entire economy, there are millions of other variables that could be polluting our analysis, right? For example, economies tend to grow most quickly when we're coming out of a recession. So an economist who specializes in business cycles could look at that same data and say, aha, the fact that GDP is growing so quickly under Democratic presidents or Democratic administrations proves that Democratic administrations are more prone to creating recessions. Now, I don't buy that line, right? I don't actually think that that's correct. But it just goes to show you that you can't simply take a first past the push look at this data without actually understanding the economic relationships involved. Yep, so I've already done that. Uh, that's why the study itself only calculated what's called real GDP growth, 
which meant they were allocating the growth based on the variable that you just mentioned. So that the control was not simply congruent to the presidential cycle. It was connected to the actual policy of the president that implemented it. All right, and you can go and check me out on that. It is located American Economic Review, Princeton economist Alan Blinder and Mark Watson. When we talk about the Build Back Better program, it seems as if to me, many guys like you that are adversarial to it, are adversarial to it based on principle and not actually the substance of what it can do. Investing into human capital, human infrastructure, making sure that families are able to afford some of the changing needs in America, such as child daycare, COVID-19 has created a new reality for a lot of parents. It seems as if you all have a principle argument against it, rather than looking at the actual line by line, moment by moment of what the investment does for the average person. Am I correct on that assumption? I certainly think principles have something to do with it. I and many others object to the bill in part because our view of what the proper relationship is between Washington's, Washington DC and the citizen. But I also think that there's sound economic basis to adopt the bill based on the specific line items that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. For years, we've thrown money at a lot of these problems and they're not really getting better. If you look at the areas where costs are rising and American families are having a really hard time making ends meet, look at hospital services, for example, up 200 percent since the year 2000. Look at medical services on average up more than 100% since the year 2000. Compare that to college tuition, which I was talking about just a moment before. What do all these things have in common? They're massively regulated, which makes it harder to supply the good and service. And they're also more often than not highly subsidized, which makes demand and hence price higher. You put those together and that's a recipe for runaway cost increases. So I think that we need to take a really hard look at not just how much is being spent and what we want the money to go towards, but how the money is actually being allocated and why we expect it to be spent better this time than in all the previous bills that frequently didn't didn't actually improve the variables that we wanted to improve. Okay, let's talk about higher education, all right? Um, You've brought that up a couple of times and you know that it costs too damn much to go to college. We both agree, right? But look at what it is, right? So I can say clearly and confidently that subsidizing education has created a usury market in the higher education industry, right? So now you have out of control cost of education and you have still a moderate impact as far as training and getting people prepared for the workforce. But there's some other stuff you gotta look at too. For example, the cost of accreditation. That's a real cost for universities and colleges and even training programs. They have to incur that cost, how do they do so? Well, they get it from the student. Right, even if the student is getting a loan in order to pay for it. The Department of Education, they don't accredit. They do not certify institutions, they're out of that business. I actually believe if the Department of Education, and follow me on this professor, would get out of the business of simply certifying accrediting bodies who are private companies that will then accredit institutions. You may can eliminate a middleman here and provide a significant public program that could dramatically decrease costs. Do you get what I'm saying here? Instead of having private companies accredit colleges and universities and the Department of Education recognizing these private companies through their affiliation, eliminate the middleman 
so that the Department of Justice or allow that to be at least one option. So the Department of Education, excuse me, can directly accredit institutions. What are your thoughts on that? It's an interesting idea. Before I can actually endorse one specific proposal, I think that we would need to focus a little bit more on exactly what's driving these higher accreditation costs. Mm. My gut says there's two main things driving it. On the one hand, there's the massive injection and in purchasing power that comes from the fact that we've subsidized higher education too much. On the other hand, I bet that there, if you actually look at the particulars of accreditation, I bet that there's a lot of those things that goes into accreditation that strictly speaking, institutions of higher education don't need to get involved in. I think that if we focus more narrowly on the academics and also deal with the excess subsidy problem, that might do a better job of controlling costs. Yeah. Um, I'm about 80% with you on that. So listen, that's something, right, Professor? Yes, it is. <laughs> Excellent. My man, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Good luck next semester, and we'll have you back on the program. Likewise, and happy holidays. Thank you, sir. Happy holidays.